avalanche is a metaphor for massive change. So we look for these trends where there's these invisible changes happening underneath the surface. And when they all come together and hit an inflection point, the the landscape will change forever. And so we have a mantra that we like to invest pre-avalanche in founders that can see the future that's not yet here, but are reading the invisible trends underneath the surface. Hey everyone, this is Prashant and I'll be your host for the VC 10X podcast. And today we have Caitlin Donnelly with us. Caitlin is the founder and managing director of Avalanche VC, an early stage venture firm investing early in technology companies that transform how people learn, earn and own. Previously, she was co-founder and director at Delivery Associates, the leading public sector advisory firm implementing technology and large-scale reform worldwide. She served on the board until the company partnered with a private equity firm in November 2022. She has invested in companies, funds, and founders building behind massive trends that are obviously the future. In this episode, we talk about investing in companies that ride avalanches or massive trends that will change the world forever. How they identify an avalanche before it's happened. What are some upcoming avalanches that they have spotted? How they stand out in early stage investing? How they think about portfolio construction? Caitlin's biggest learning as a VC and lots more. So without wasting any time, let's dive straight in. Hey, Caitlin, so good to have you on the VC 10X podcast. How are you doing? Great, great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure having you on. To start things off, can we first have your story and why you started Avalanche? Yeah, well, it's a long story, but I will get to it quickly, which is um, I started my career at McKinsey and then I worked for Pearson, which is a big education company, and I founded their corporate venturing unit in 2011 and ran that for five years and loved the role of being a lead investor. I saw how capital that really was committed and could understand a company could create a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, but being part of a, a corp, a big corporate wasn't an ideal situation because you're always beholden to the, to the larger interests and you're never going to move the bottom line. And I wanted to get back into VC as an exited founder who'd gone through the full experience. So me and a couple of other ex McKinsey people, um, had an idea for a company that would do what we were doing at McKinsey, but broader and outside. So I co-founded a company called Delivery Associates that works with governments to drive big reform programs, grew that over 10 years to 300 people profitability and sold to private equity in November, 2022. And I started angel investing a couple of years before that sale to start building my track record and and get back into the market. And am now um, a VC full-time with uh, our second fund, which is still kind of a demo fund, but testing um, our ability to get into pre-seed and early seed deals of companies that are transforming how people learn, earn, and own. Yeah, absolutely. That's very interesting. And the name is Avalanche uh, Ventures, I guess. So what's the thinking behind the name here? So the thinking originally comes from a paper I co-wrote, published in 2013, called An Avalanche is Coming Higher Education and the Revolution Ahead. And Avalanche is a metaphor for massive change. So we look for these trends where there's these invisible changes happening underneath the surface. And when they all come together and hit an inflection point, the the landscape will change forever. And so we have a mantra that we like to invest pre-avalanche in founders that can see the future that's not yet here, but are reading the invisible trends underneath the surface. And so we've identified some of these these avalanches 
that are very clear from the data. And it's not always clear how it's going to play out or who's going to be a winner, but that's where we begin to work with founders and assess the market and take our bets. Absolutely. That, that's a very interesting model to invest. Uh, so let's talk about some of these examples of this to get a better sense of this, because I think when the avalanches happen, everyone knows it, right? right. The market knows it, everyone knows it, but you know, detecting it before it is about to happen, that I think is a difficult job to do. So how, how are you going about doing that part? Well, there's some massive trends that you just know are going to happen, but people sometimes don't think long term, like through the long term consequences because they're so focused on today. But for example, like three of the big mega trends are obviously the inflection point that we're at with uh, software eating the world with AI. It's just eating the world faster. Um, and then the demographic trends of fertility rates declining and lifespans increasing, which put the onus on lifelong learning and the productivity of every uh, young person. So it's now much more important ever before that we get young people over the education learning curve to be produ productive members of society and that they learn to continue learning through their entire lifespan because it's not good enough to be able to amortize a college degree over a 30-year career and then retire. Like you're going to have to be continuously adding value to society and on-ramping and off-ramping. Absolutely. Totally agree. So can we call AI an avalanche that's happening right now? Or do you think it's still pre-avalanche? I think yeah. AI is like a macro avalanche trend. What, what mm -hmm. we focus on are these sort of like micro avalanches. So where AI might play a role, for example, would be one of our investment verticals is efficacious edutainment. So the idea that gaming plus pedagogy plus technology plus system change of education systems can all be combined into producing learning out higher learning outcomes at scale. And a technology like AI brings down the cost of produ producing high quality content and personalizing content for students, assessing them quickly. Like you can know pretty, pretty quickly, like within seven questions, maybe like two minutes often, like someone's English language abilities or math capability, math skill levels, where previously people would have to sit down, take a standardized test, wait two months, get the results back. Like, you know that very quickly now. And AI is one of those technologies that enables that huge change. Absolutely. Totally agree. I think tech is going to be one industry that's going to be changed forever uh, with AI coming into the picture. And uh, I think that that can be one thing that people can watch out for. And yeah. uh, talking about these avalanches, right? So one thing is identifying these trends early that, okay, these are the trends or maybe these are the sectors that we should be looking at. These are the companies we should be backing. And the other important aspect of this is the people who are actually equipped to take the advantage of these avalanches, right? So how do you find these people, the founders? Yeah, well, it's a, a lifelong full court press. And part of it is there's an, an inbound element to it. So by like creating a profile, being out there, recording this podcast, I hope to um, show myself as a partner that high quality founders, founders that really have vision would want to partner with because they see that we see the world in a similar place and that I've had the experience of building a company and then exiting it to private equity that they could learn from. And I'd be able to help tip the scales in their favor in terms of the success for their company. Um, and then of course there's outbound of just putting out, um, like 
looking on Twitter, LinkedIn, like asking my networks, like, who do you know that's building something interesting? Like, who are your like smart friends who've been thinking about a sector for a long time? Like send them my way. I'd love to meet them and have a conversation. And then we have a network of network partners and venture partners who are also actively like looking for deals for us. And if they bring one that that we do, we offer a carry share program so that they can, you know, get upside in the fund. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Uh, And talking about avalanches, right? Uh, I'm not sure if you're going to open your cards for us here, but uh, what are the current trends that you're excited about that can be like future avalanches that we're going to see happen maybe in the next few years? We love this theme called arm the rebels, which was originally coined by Toby at Shopify, uh, where he's kind of describing in star Wars in a star Wars analogy about, you know, if Amazon's the empire Shopify is arming the rebels. And so we have this belief of both arming the rebels and that everybody is an entrepreneur or, or they'll have to learn to think like one that as people are staying in jobs, in shorter and shorter time periods, they're realizing that these big employers are not family. They don't have, you know, um, they're not making emotional decisions when they think about hiring and firing people, like they're doing reductions in force that, um, the pendulum is going to swing towards more and more people building entrepreneurial careers, which might mean having one or more employers by having more of like a basket of things that they do potentially like owning their own e-commerce property or um, small scale substack, but like finding ways of monetizing themselves uh, in a way that they can control and have agency over. And that the end state of that is that people will also become owners. That's the like earn and own part of their own businesses, their own assets, like things that they don't necessarily have to trade time for money for. And that those things are, can become a smaller increment of value rather than, you know, a, you don't have to just found a billion dollar company to be an owner of a valuable asset. Absolutely. That's a very interesting trend there. Okay. We see the trend here, right? That that's going to happen more and more, of course. So how do you now translate that into what are the kind of companies that can benefit from this trend? So what would those companies look like here? So we've looked at like, where are the traditional places where there are smaller businesses? Uh, And there's, of course, digitally native jobs, digital native businesses like the Shopify store, e-commerce store, for example, or, um, you know, a Substack writer, like people who are using a platform to deliver mostly a digital product or service. But there's also in real life um, franchise owners. shop owners, you see a lot in hospitality. So restaurants usually have, or, or coffee shops or bars have one location, maybe two. Um, and, uh, like another example would be health, healthcare, potentially like the care economy. Like we're thinking even teachers can be like teacher entrepreneurs. So there's the rise of, of school choice and micro school and pod schooling, like teachers can be their own brand. And, um, spin up their own small school that serves a niche customer extremely well. And that that smaller unit can now operate with the um, overhead efficiencies of a massive company because the technology stack can power them. Absolutely. That's amazing. Uh, And now when these uh, opportunities are coming to you, these deals are coming to you through various sources uh, that you mentioned before, 
how are you evaluating those deals and what are the key components that you look at while evaluating a deal? So the first question I always ask is who are you and why are you doing this? So we like to back people who are really building their life's work. Like they've thought about a problem in industry, a sector for, you know, 10 plus years. They've um, really understand it and think that they have a differentiated take on the market. And that um, usually, they also usually have a track record of excellence. Like they've, you know, kind of exceeded and excelled at everything that they've done. And they have plenty of options. Like they could go work for a big corporation. They're highly in demand, but this is like what they want to do with the rest of their life. Like they are going to build this for the, and solve this problem for the next 10 to 20 years. The other thing um, that we look for is we make sure that it's a complete founding team. And so we're in the business of investing behind uh, technological innovations. And so you need to have a technologist or an innovator somewhere on the team um, that's really like built into the cycle so that you're staying ahead. And that tech element of um, the offering is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, once you've invested in these companies, how does the journey look like from there on? How are you helping them succeed? Yeah, well, it's really uh, very founder dependent based on what it is that they want from us. So like our first rule, of course, is like, do no harm. Like, I don't want to be the VC that's pestering you over email, you know, if you're, you know, charging ahead and and running your business. Um, But at like the other end of the spectrum, there are solo founders that we've partnered with on and I have like a stock take with every two weeks for an hour where we sit down and we examine like what's with the management team, like what's gone well, what are they working on? What does the pipeline look like? You know, is it a well, is it well capitalized? And we just problem solve wherever is needed in order to um, navigate through. And I think that by being a um, successful exited founder myself, I've seen how long the journey can be and the various ways that you can make small mistakes or like underestimate risks. And I just want to help the founders that we back set themselves. Like you can't, you can't unleash greatness. Like I can't make the company successful, but I can probably help you avoid failing for, for, you know, dumb reasons, basically. Absolutely. Totally agree. And uh, you being an exited founder yourself, there's going to be tons of learnings there. Uh, so right now we are in, in a kind of difficult environment for founders. Capital isn't easily accessible. So what would be your advice for founders who are building right now? What's the way to build right now? Sell, sell, sell. So right. look like, you know, it, the, if you don't need access to capital, like you get to your default alive, you get to decide your own destiny um, and you have the ability to be patient, to wait out inevitable storms. But the only way you can do that is if you have customers that love you, that are, are willing to pay you money and you're growing through sales. So instead of focusing on the build, 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 focus on the customer success, like customer love, like building and selling and getting paid for a valuable product and service that helps your customer. Absolutely. Totally agree. Uh, and you're operating at a very competitive space. It's early stage investing, pre-seed, seed, a uh, lot of investors in that space, right? So how do you stand out as an investor and try to win deals from there? 
I come back to my um, operator founder roots where I say, look, I've been in your position before. Um, I've founded and exited a company. We actually didn't raise money for, for our company. So I know what it's like to, to bootstrap and be cash constrained. Um, and I'm not going to sell you on um, my money. You know, I'm like, I see myself as a partner. And then the other thing is like, I, I, so, so there's who I am, what my experience has been, my journey. And then I think the second thing is I only want to work with founders where we have a shared vision of the future and we're working together to tell that story and shape a new market. And there are actually very few, I find that there are very few VCs that put out a compelling proprietary original thesis of the way that the market looks like there may be a little bit more reactive or they invest across like widely different sectors. Like we're pretty tailored into our like worldview and are able to um, help founders build connections and bring people along with them. Like it's very important to me that for the companies that I invest in, it's like a me deal where I'm like, okay, I'm a great investor for you. Like my experiences across maybe education or, you know, building a services company can really help move the needle. Um, and I know that there are plenty of companies out there in places like medical devices or like construction robots where it's going to be very difficult for me to, um, you know, be helpful other than like providing money. And so I really focus on the areas where I think I have an information um, advantage and where um, I can help move the needle. Absolutely. I think for uh, right now, you m might just be the ideal person to have on the cap table for any startup because you've built a startup just in that fashion, you know, not uh, burning much capital and just using your own resources to build a solid business and then ex exiting to private equity. And uh, you, you mentioned that selling is such an important aspect right now. So that is the only way you can bring money into the business and try to self-sustain. Any sales tips for founders? I'm by no means a sales expert. And I think that one of the things I would say is like, they, this is a, is like a, I, I didn't make this up, but someone says like first time founders focus on product and second time founders focus on distribution. And I think that's really true. And it's like, think of, don't think of sales as like an add on of like, okay, I have my product and now I'm going to sell. Think about it as a key part of the company that you're building and do as many pre-sales as possible. And I think, think about, sales as a relationship where you're trying to influence and, um, and, and partner with your customer. You're not trying to sell them. You're not trying to sell them on like a false basket of goods. And then I think the other thing is be clear about who, like what your real like use cases and who your ideal customer is and don't get distracted by people who are not your like ideal customer or, you know, cause there's, there's lots of bad revenue out there, you know, being like, I see that sometimes people are, get very um, starry eyed about um, this happens definitely in education when people are trying to recruit students that might not be a good fit for their programs. And they're like, well, this is like another $10,000 each student per of revenue. And you're like, yeah, but is it profitable revenue? Is it good revenue? Like, Revenue doesn't matter. Sales don't matter if, if you're not actually converting that into a, something valuable that is, is adding value to your company. Absolutely. T totally agree. And uh, we have seen some instances here in India. We, have, we had some big valued edtechs here. Uh, one of them being Baiju's, which is one of the most valuable yeah. edtech companies in the world, right? And it ha had a 
massive markdown recently in valuations because i think the thing that they got wrong is exactly that that they were burning a lot of capital and acquiring maybe the wrong kind of customers who are not getting so much value or maybe they, they were using pushy tactics to sell and optimizing those growth numbers so that they can raise big on bigger valuations and then the market slumped and then they can't really keep on following that model so that model is not sustainable maybe if you have a rosy market everything is good optimistic people then it can probably would have kept on going like that that cycle would have kept running but now it cannot function like that because there is a change in the market and that's actually how markets function so it's not a sensible way to build a company in my view personally yeah i think there are like multiple ways you can play the game and there are founders i think byju's is like a good example who really like played the game like a fiddle you know it's like master class and how he was able to attract capital like sell a big vision like read the market tea leaves um, and I'd say that I'm, I grew up in Minneapolis. I love going to the Berkshire Hathaway um, annual meeting every year. Like we're, yes, venture investors, but with the DNA of like, let's build generational co companies and, you know, do it in a pragmatic way with still a massive vision, but like fewer kind of like bumps along the way. And so I think that there are multiple ways that you can play um, the game and you need to know what game you're playing. and you know, and not get confused. Absolutely, totally agree on that. And uh, now let's talk about portfolio construction. So how do you think about constructing the portfolio and, you know, having the different elements in place? What are your ownership targets? If you can give us an insight into that. Yeah, so my first fund was um, bro pretty broad, 36 companies, um, 39 investments. So we did three follow-ons and, um and it's, it's good, especially early stage, to have a lot of diversification. But what I saw from that experience was, especially because I'm a domain expert and I'm working very closely with founders, like quality beats quantity any day. And I think, you know, as an investor that there are some like A plus bets. And then, then there are others that are like, there's a little bit more hair on them, A minus, B plus. And you want to put the most amount of capital into your winners. Like at the end of the day, like your job is to generate returns for your LPs. And that's only going to happen if you have ownership and, and capital and you're in, in a, a winning company that is really knocking it out of the park. And so um, we aim for about like five to 10% ownership with our initial check. And that means going very early, like you almost always ten, like uh, less than ten million post money valuations. If we, if I come in after that, we might ask for like advisory shares or or something like that because we are like domain experts and maybe the founders have very generalist investors that don't that don't understand the space and we think we can add something, but we need to be able to like make it worth our time. Um, and it's a four year investment period. We hope to do somewhere between 20 and 30 investments. We've done two core investments to date. So we're still really early in our fund deployment and are actively looking for the right founders to partner with. That's pretty awesome. All right. Uh, let's talk about the importance of collaboration, especially in early stage investing, because uh, I think there's a lot of collaboration happening in constructing seed rounds and things like that. You can tag mm -hmm. along some bigger VCs. So how important is that aspect in early stage investing? 
Well, for me, I've always thought one of my competitive advantages was getting in early, like writing the first check, working with the founder pre-incorporation. And so I think when you're a new fund, you have to be able to like get conviction quickly and take the risk. And so yes, like collaboration with other VCs is important. It's important to be able to have a good reputation so that you can uh, connect your founders to downstream capital and people will take those calls. Um, But I don't rely on other VCs to send me deal flow. I mean, it's, it, it's always great to collaborate. Um, it's nice when there, there are definitely investors that invest at a later stage than us that will send us things that might be too early from them. Um, a couple of my LPs also do direct investing, but usually bigger checks later stage. And so we work very collaboratively together and it just as a solo GP adds leverage to my team. So I think, I mean, obviously it's good to be be collaborative and cooperative, but you can't uh, lose focus on your own game and advantages and um, trying to, to add value to your founders. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So coming to my last main question before we move on to the rapid fire round. Uh, and this one is, uh, what's been your biggest learning as a VC? My biggest learning as a VC is to not make assumptions. Like I think you can take a pitch or a company and kind of fall in love with it and then be like, oh, well, if they did this, it'll turn into that. Or like, I can see how this can work, but it's like, you're not in the driver's seat. You're taking a you're a small minority in this company. And so you really have to listen to what the founder is building, their vision, like they're a judgment over time because you can't project your um, views on it. That's a very interesting point there, uh, because I have seen instances where a startup is operating from my eyes. Let's say I'm an investor from my eyes. It's operating in an amazing space. Mm. I think this is the exact company that needs to go big. But when you listen to the founder talking, they're not hitting that point, maybe that exact point that I'm thinking about. Right. So that is somewhat of a disalignment. So might be a pass there. Right. Yeah. And it depends on like, there's one founder in my portfolio that um, had like sort of the right idea, but wasn't communicating it very well. And I, when he was pitching me, I gave him um, very blunt feedback. And then he came back within 24 hours with a new deck and was like, okay, here's how I see it. And um, really wanted feedback and advice and like to work together on the strategy. And so that then was a, um, I, I really liked his competitive advantage and positioning. And so we would work, we could work together on it, but there's others where it's, and this is especially where it's like, you, if you don't know the space that well, and you don't have a lot of connections, there's just like very little you can do. There's, you know, there's a founder, another founder that I'm thinking in my portfolio, who's good, good, very good technically, but is really struggling to do those sales. And it's in a space like, um, that I just like, I don't know. I can't like call up five people and, get him help. And, um, yeah, so you have to, you have to know, you have to pick, pick your, your battles and, um, and where you think you can win. Absolutely. Totally agree. Awesome. Uh, that brings us to the end and let's do the rapid fire round now, wherein I'll ask you five quick questions about the fund that you're investing. Yeah. And you have to give five quick answers. Okay. All right. All right. So the first one goes, what are the sectors and regions you invest in? Mostly in North America, but can be remote and global. And we invest in companies that transform how people learn, earn, and own. That often means ed tech, uh, future of work, SaaS for small businesses, Web3, that if it allows you to have ownership economy type stuff. 
Great. Uh, what's the typical stage of investment? Pre-seed. What's the typical check size you put in? 150 to 300. Where can founders apply for funding in case there's a direct way? Send me an email at hello at avalanche.vc and include who you are, why you're building this, and uh, any investment materials. Awesome. Where can our listeners follow you? I'm on Twitter, um, KR Donnelly, and LinkedIn is probably, those are my, my two best channels. Awesome. Uh, pleasure talking to you, and I wish you happy investing. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>